Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. All right, so this is uh, essentially part two in a three-part series looking at, um, at the criminal justice system and what Jewish law might have to say about it, um, and, and in particular focusing on what, what are uh, widely understood to be uh, problems within America's criminal justice system. Uh, last week we looked at police, not last week, last month we looked at policing. Um, we kind of look at these in like three different steps. Um, so, you know, kind of like prior to a person's uh, entanglement in the criminal justice system, uh, then uh, the, the process of entanglement in the criminal justice system, uh, and then uh, ultimately uh, looking at, um, at some like forward-thinking issues or, or reform-oriented issues, okay? Um, so that's what we're going we're gonna to talk tonight about, the, the sort of middle part of that, uh, which is uh, incarceration and, and, more, and more to the point, uh, mass incarceration. So I, I began last week uh, just pointing out some, um, some statistics uh, that some of which I'll reiterate and some of which I'm going to add on to. So... Um, the current state and federal prison populations are more than 2.3 million people in America, uh, or one in every 100 adults on a given day. Uh, the annual jail population is approximately $730,000 on it, $730,000 people on any given day, or a total of 13 million people annually. The total Number of people under correctional control, uh, including incarceration, probation, and parole, is 6.9 million people, or one in 31 adults. Uh, current incarceration relative to U.S. average from 1925 to 1970 is five times. Um, so, in other words, uh, uh, our incarceration rate compared to what it was between 1925 and 1970 is five times the amount. Uh, the incarceration rate for black males is about 4,700 per 100,000, or several times the rate at which South Africa was locking up black men just before apartheid ended. Um, and just kind of uh, going off of that, uh, one in every 106 white men ages 18 or older in America is incarcerated, whereas one in every 36 Hispanic men age 18 or older in America is incarcerated, and one in every 15 black men aged 18 or older in America is incarcerated. Um, so um, that data might lead one to conclude that racial minorities commit more crimes than white Americans, but uh, it's not 
entirely true. I and mean, we talked about this uh, in the a little bit in the session last time related to policing, but uh, uh, black people are more than three times uh, are three times more likely uh, to be arrested for drug crimes, even though white people use drugs at equal or slightly higher rates. Um, Okay. Um, we would need an 80% reduction in incarceration rates to bring us back to the 1970 level. Um, the U.S. share of world population of incarcerated people is 25%, right? So we have the total number of people who are incarcerated around the globe. We have a quarter of them in, in America. Uh, what? USA! US. <laughs> we win. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, and and uh, of, incarcerated, of incarcerated women, it's 32.2%. Uh, um, uh, what's that? Even higher. Higher now? Even higher percentage than 25%. Right, 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 right. When you, when you isolate women. Yeah. Um, all right, now, now compare this internationally. Okay, so um, uh, it's, it's believed that something like 10 million people are held in prisons and jails throughout the world, uh, mostly as pre-trial detainees or serving a criminal justice sentence. More, almost half of these are in the United States, which is 2.24 million, far and away the highest number. China, 1.64 million. And Russia, 680,000. U.S. Okay. Uh, in addition, uh, at least 650,000 are reported to be in pre-trial or administrative detention in China. Uh, so that might bump them up higher if you include those people. Or be... Uh, We'll have to work harder. Yeah, Come on, a little, little Puritan work, Protestant work ethic. Uh, and um, we're still getting more on a per capita basis behind bars. Volume, True. True. Right. China's got you China's know got about like two billion people. Ten, right. Yeah, almost ten times as many people. Um, Hundred fifty thousand in North Korea. If these were included, the world total would be more than 11 million, and China would be on par with the U.S. in total incarcerated people. Of course, as you said, China has. 10 times more people than the U.S. Um, okay, so per, if, you, if you break it down as, a, as a relative to population size, um, the United States, per 100,000 people, we incarcerate 716 people. St. Kitts and Nevis, I have no idea actually where that is. Caribbean, Caribbean okay. Uh, 714. Uh, Sakeley's. Seychelles? Seychelles? It's in the Caribbean also? Uh, Interesting. Okay. So they have 709, and then it drops to the U.S. Virgin Islands, 539, and Barbados, 521. A lot in the Caribbean. That's interesting. Well, um, always islands. Because mm -hmm. you can't get away. <laughs> right, but you would think that the islands themselves would be. Anyway. Um, uh, well, you know. Uh, 
you know or Alcatraz Island. Um, wow, what, David? Small on Alcatraz now. Well, right. This is a weird factoid. What what country has the highest per capita rate of theft? Per capita. I don't know. Vatican City pickpocketing is rampant hmm. among tourists. And they've also got a small number, a relatively small. I only have a yeah. few residents. Oh yeah, because once you divide by residents. <laughs> so comparing comparing the the per capita levels. Russia is in 10th place with 475 incarcerated people per 100,000, and China is much further down the list. So when, when the president says, you know, like, we got thugs everywhere, we got bad people everywhere, uh, comparing us to Russia. Right. Um, more than half the world's countries and territories have rates below 150 per 100,000. Um, okay. Uh, and I thought that this was kind of interesting, a, a timeline of the modern American prison system. So the first modern prison uh, is uh, Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Have any of you ever been there? Have you been there? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, you can still go to Philadelphia. Uh, it's a museum. It's a museum now. Yeah, yeah it's a museum now. Um, and they, um, I, never, I never went, but on Halloween they turn it into like a haunted house. Yeah. Cool. A, and they have a Al Capone cell is in there. Um, every prison has an Al Capone cell. Um, yeah, he got around. Yeah, he got around. Like the best tours in this country is Alcatraz. Alcatraz, yeah. Was phenomenal. Yeah. Eastern State is, um, you can see it on the tour there, uh, because it existed for so long, um, they... Uh, really were, were part of sort of every like prison philosophy um, and um, uh, and kind of went through different iterations. Uh, one of the things that it's notable for is it pioneers the use of solitary confinement uh, to give incarcerated people time for reflection and penitence. Um, so the notion of, of incarceration as a place for penitence or penitentiary is an interesting concept and 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 as we'll see um, doesn't really seem to have a parallel in Jewish tradition there may be ways of of thinking about it that way uh, but doesn't really seem to have a parallel Um, uh, in 1866 convict leasing which is the practice of leasing out incarcerated people usually black men to work for private individuals begins have any of you seen the documentary uh, 13th so 13th is about the 13th Amendment, which outlaws slavery, but the, but the amendment says um, that uh, uh, involuntary servitude except, I don't remember the exact language, but something like involuntary servitude um, except as punishment for a crime having been com- you know, d- uh, committed and, and, and duly adjudicated um, uh, shall, not, shall be outlawed in, in, in uh, the United States. Um, but what that opens up the door to, of course, is uh, ensnaring people in the criminal justice system and and enabling involuntary ser- servitude to exist within the criminal justice system. For the economic benefit of others. Right. So, um, and, and it's something that, you know, still exists today, you know, whether it's license plates or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, in 1955, the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill begins, closing of mental hospitals and reduction in overall crime rate, uh, excuse me, in, in overall state care for people with serious mental illness. Jails and prisons eventually take up the slack. 
In the 60s, American and most Western countries experienced dramatic increase in crime. From 62 to 72, the annual number of homicides more than doubles. The homicide rate among blacks had been several times higher than whites since at least the 1930s. Uh, now, what's, what's, what, what the statistics don't note about that is that the, the, is that the uh, poverty rates and, um, and social structures and you know, communal institutions among uh, black communities had also been uh, several times weaker um, uh, uh, since you know, after the Civil War. Um, what's also interesting about that, uh, about that, uh, that um, crime rate from 62 to 70, you know, there's actually, there's a lot of conversation and debate about, about why that is. You know, some people uh, attribute it to the, the counterculture and, uh, and uh, various social movements that, that led to, you know, a breakdown in social order. Some people, some people uh, make an argument that it's related to the civil rights era. Uh, and some people actually say that it's related to, um, uh, to a generation that had been drinking water uh, that had uh, unhealthy levels of lead in it. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, um, uh, clean water laws in, in the early 70s passed by Richard Nixon uh, that, uh, that, that got lead out of the water supply um, that you start seeing a decrease in crime rates that are, that are attributable to, to that. Anyway, uh, 1963. Uh, in uh, Gideon versus Wainwright, a Supreme Court case that uh, ruled that um, uh, indigent criminal defendants have a right to a lawyer. Uh, the court, however, says nothing about how to pay for such counsel, leading to a rise in fees charged to defendants. Uh, in the 1960s, a number of rulings by the Warren Court expand the rights of incarcerated people and people being policed at the expense of police power. Uh, 1968, Johnson, President Johnson calls for a war on crime in the context of war on poverty and other root causes. Uh, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act passes Congress, but with major modifications from conservatives that give most funding control to the states. Johnson considers a veto, but the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy dissuades him. 1971, Nixon declares the war on drugs. Uh, 1982, Reagan recommits to the war on drugs. Uh, 19, uh, uh, so 1983 Supreme Court affirms that people cannot be incarcerated for failing to pay debts. Um, 1984, Sentencing Reform Act prescribes mandatory minimums and el eliminates judicial discretion. 1986, the Dr Anti-Drug Abuse Act institutes a 100 to 1 disparity. A minimum sentence of five years without parole for possessing five grams of crack cocaine mostly used by blacks, and the same punishment for 500 grams of powder cocaine used mainly by whites. Uh, polls show less than 2% of the public believe illegal drugs to be the most important problem facing the country. The LA Times reports that a national wave of crack dealing related murders actually followed the wave of media hype about crack. Scare stories about an instantly addictive and violence provoking drug served to spread crack cocaine not accurately describe its use in most of America. In 1988, uh, two years later, polls now show a majority of uh, believe illegal drugs are a leading problem. Uh, and then that was the year that the, the uh, Willie Horton ad helped George Bush defeat Michael Dukakis in, uh, in the presidential election. Uh, 
Um, in the early 1990s, the national homicide rate begins a steady significant decline. Uh, drug use begins to climb again, but remains below 1970s rate. In 1994, uh, President Clinton signs the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, the largest crime bill in the history of the country, which is sponsored by then-Senator Joe Biden. Um, among its provisions are $9.7 billion for prisons, funding for 100,000 new police officers in the system of burn grants. Um, the act also bans incarcerated people from receiving Pell Grants from college. Additionally, it gives the Department of Justice the power to sue police departments for civil rights infractions. Um, the Violence Against Women Act is part of the bill. Uh, it's not until 2010 that the Federal Fair Sentencing Act reduces the 100 to 1 disparity between crack and powder cocaine to 18 to 1. And that's also the same year that Michelle Alexander publishes The New Jim Crow. Have any of you read that book? Yes. So in, in The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander argues that, uh, that the system of incarceration, um, uh, both in ways by, uh, of design and and. and by happenstance, have basically come to replace Jim Crow laws in uh, in creating um, a sort of second-class citizen status for for Black people because incarceration in the criminal justice system uh, um, is you know, disproportionately impacts the Black community and denies them their rights and and, and various other things. So. Um, in uh, 2013, this one I thought was interesting. In 2013. Uh, that was when the Edward Snowden leaks uh, came to light. Edward Snowden reveals that the extent of U.S. phone surveillance, 87% of wiretaps are used in cases where drug offense is the most serious suspected crime. Okay. So, anyway. Um, that's what I got so far. All right. I thought that the first uh, place that I would want to start is by, because the, the Jewish tradition, as it's probably not surprising to uh, most of you, has a lot to say about, um, about punishment for, for crimes. I mean, first of all, it has a, lot of, has a lot of laws, as you know, right? 613 commandments. Um, and every law has a, has a corresponding uh, punishment for its violation. Uh, now, we're, we're in the book of Leviticus now. Uh, and so uh, we just read in Parshat Vayikra that if you uh, commit a, a, a sin, uh, you're supposed to bring an offering. If it's, a, if it's an inadvertent sin, you bring a, a, a sin offering uh, or purification offering. And if, it's a, uh, if, if, if you're uncertain whether you've committed a sin or not, you bring a, a guilt offering. Um, well, interesting. There's no, there's, there's not really an offering for an intentional violation of a crime. Um, intentional commitment of a crime uh, involves punishment of, of various sorts, and then you might also bring a, uh, a sin offering in case there are other things weighing on your conscience or something like that. So usually the offerings were uh, a a part of the of the punitive measures for committing an offense, um, but were not the extent of it. Uh, and it has the, the, the Jewish tradition has a handful of, of punitive measures. We'll get to some of them in a second. But I think actually the, the, um, uh, the, the more interesting place to start is, is why the Jewish tradition ascribes punishment for crimes. And then we can get into what punishments that they ascribe. Um, so the, um, the first, uh, where's my notes here? 
Okay, well, I don't have my notes, but that's fine. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the first um, uh, rationale, or the first objective behind punishment is um, deterrence. Okay, so you see this in the first text that you have from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13. Uh, thus Israel will hear and be afraid, and such evil things will not be done again in your midst. Right? So, so, so many kinds of punishments um, are offered with that explicit rationale. That the person being punishment, the person being punished would usually, usually that involves public forms of punishment. Right? So there are public forms of executions and things like that. Uh, and so the idea being that people will see that this is what happens if you commit this kind of crime. Uh, and will and people will therefore uh, not commit a crime again. So, uh, so that uh, holding up these rationales, I think, is important because as we think about um, contemporary criminal justice issues, one of the ways to determine uh, their relative uh, 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 morality or not is to um, identify the ways in which uh, the the you know the the ends justify the means. Right, so um, so if one of the goals is deterrence, um, is something like incarceration, um, sufficient, significant, sufficient deterrence uh, for committing crimes, uh, and the and the data on that is um, not very strong, I would say. Right, I mean, first of all, so if you have rising incarceration rates, you know, five times today what they were in 1970, um, it suggests that the, and, and uh, it suggests that more incarceration isn't necessarily leading to a decrease in crime, right? So, uh, but, so it's just something to think about whether, um, uh, wh whether putting it into our context, uh, thinking whether something is a deterrent, a sufficient deterrent uh, to justify its use is, is, uh, is worthwhile. Um, the second rationale for punishment in uh, in the Bible or in Jewish law is um, is retribution. Um, so uh, <clears throat> uh, you see that in, uh, in in text number two from Deuteronomy chapter twenty five, which institutes uh, what are known as makot, which means uh, lashes or whippings, uh, corporal punishment. For committing a crime, uh, and uh, um, uh, most of the um, prohibitions in the Torah uh, uh, upon their violation um, are punished with uh, lashes. If a person is, uh, of course, most of these, it goes without saying, are uh, are not just like something that happens to you if you commit a, a sin or commit a crime. Um, it's something that happens as a as a process. You have to like go to trot to to trial and things like that. So there's there's um, there's a judicial process, but assuming that you're convicted of, say, I don't know, um, uh, eating treif, um, you would get lashes uh, for for doing it, right? And uh, uh, you're get, you're allowed to be given um, uh, up to forty lashes. You see in verse three there, um, uh, and actually because the text says, but not more, lest being flogged further to excess, your brother be degraded before your eyes. The rabbis uh, uh, restrict it, saying no crime should be punished with more than 39 lashes. So you can only get up to 39 lashes in, in classical Jewish law. Uh, 
But that's but but the the lashes uh, at least are. I mean, they they may have a, a have a deterrent quality too. But that's not the rationale that's that's essentially given for for the lashes. The rationale for lashes essentially is, is retribution, right? So you um, uh, you you commit a it's punitive, right? So you commit a crime, uh, and so you get uh, you you feel the outrage of the community for having committed the crime. Um, there's uh, there's a, uh, a, a retaliatory uh, kind of uh, dimension to it. And uh, <clears throat> uh, the retaliatory dimension is, I would say, uh, um, a third aspect of, um, uh, of, of the rationale of, uh, of, of Jewish law, of, of punishment in Jewish law. Um, so you see that in, uh, in the Torah's prescription of the death penalty, right? The death penalty is, um, is retaliatory. Right? It's uh, it's you know I, I mean that in the sense of uh, of um, uh, of the term the Latin terminology of of talion, right that it's uh, that's retaliation right so if you kill somebody the retaliation of the community is that you should die uh, and you have that also in uh, in in more in smaller uh, in smaller crimes or smaller injuries. Right, so Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19. Um, if anyone maims his fellow as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury he inflicted on another shall be inflicted on him. One who, uh, one who kills a beast shall make restitution for it, uh, but one who kills a human being shall be put to death. Um, I'm going to stop there actually for a second. So, um, uh, so, so here you have this principle of uh, of of, uh, of of equal justice, right? So the 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 punishment should be commensurate with the crime committed, uh, and it should be uh, you know sort of like uh, the um, uh, the the law of uh, was it thermodynamics, right? The, uh, that it should be equal in equal in um, magnitude and opposite in direction. Um, uh, the, 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 the ex- now, some of you know that the rabbinic... Tr- what? Newton's second law. Newton's second law. There it is. Thank you. Um, so the, uh, uh, some of you know that the rabbinic tradition modifies uh, that law of, of retaliation uh, to say that it doesn't literally mean that if I cut off your hand that you should cut off mine uh, or that the court should cut off mine. Uh, it means that uh, there should be uh, fair compensation. Right, so that I should pay the equivalent of, of a hand uh, to the to the injured party, uh, and it does that um, uh, not necessarily. It's it appears not necessarily an objection to the uh, to the to the uh, theoretical justice of the act, but in the practical justice of the act. Right, so practically speaking, not all human beings are are physically equal. So if I cut off somebody's hand who's not physically equal to me, uh, my, cutting off my hand isn't necessarily a, uh, a just punishment, right? It could be disproportionately impact me negatively, or it could uh, or it could be um, unfairly weak, you know, uh, as a as a punishment. So instead, they say it should be monetary compensation, which, as you see, is what happens when you when you kill an animal. So what all that really shows you there is that. Um, uh, uh, biblical tradition views the life of um, of of other creatures as um, of less inherent value, less 
uh, sanctity than a human life. That doesn't mean we can go around killing animals willy-nilly, uh, but, uh, it, but, it, but it does mean that, uh, that it's not treated the same way as human life. But one who kills a human being shall be put to death, right? So there is a sense of, of death penalty being a, a, a strict form of, of justice uh, in, in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and primarily, it's not viewed as a, as a deterrent mechanism, um, the, the death penalty. There are certain forms of death penalty for certain kinds of crimes, uh, that are viewed uh, as as deterrents, you know. So um, you see in uh, text number five, okay. As for that prophet or dream diviner, he shall be put to death, for he urged disloyalty to the Lord your God, who freed you from the land of Egypt and who redeemed you from the house of bondage, to make you stray from the path that the Lord your God commanded you to follow. Thus, you will sweep out evil from your midst. So in that case, you see that, uh, that the death penalty there is, is meant, um, although the, I wanted to point out something different with the phrase, you shall sweep out evil from your midst. Uh, but uh, it also, I think, has the function of, of, of having a deterrent capability, right? So we, you, you execute this person for this kind of crime, even though the crime isn't, uh, isn't, uh, murder, right? It isn't strict judgment, but because it has such a negative social implication, uh, we, uh, we execute that person. Now, that brings me to an additional rationale for punishment in the, in the Jewish tradition, which is the uh, creation of a, of a pure society, right? Or of a holy society, a holy community. So this notion of uviarta hara mirkirbecha, you should sweep out evil from your midst, right? which you actually have in a number of instances. The Bible mentions that, I don't know, probably at least half a dozen times, you shall sweep out evil from your midst. Um, what, what that's saying is that there are some crimes, um, but by, the, by, the, by virtue of them existing within the community and the possibility that they could continue to exist within the community, compromise the moral character or the... Uh, uh, or the uh, 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 sanctity of the community as a whole. So you want to make sure that those things don't happen, and you want to purge it from the community when it's happening. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have that. We have that too. <coughs> There's a, uh, a an additional uh, type of law in uh, in or type of punishment, I should say, in uh, in the Torah, which is. Uh, what's known as uh, as karet. Karet is an interesting category of law. Um, we don't know exactly what it means. Okay, so karet is mentioned for a number of different uh, crimes in the Torah. So you can see this in text number six here. Um, there are thirty six acts for which the Torah prescribes karet. Um, so here, this is my translation. This is the translation from a, um, an online, from a website that, uh, that, that has virtually every Jewish text known as Sepharia. Uh, so I'm actually not sure which translation this is. Anyway, it's, it defines kart here as excision at the hands of heaven. So if you look down number seven, that's one possible way of interpreting kart. Um, 
in priestly literature, the penalty of karate was understood to include a series of related punishments at the hand of God, ranging from the immediate death of an offender, as in Leviticus 20.17, to his premature death at a later time and even to the death of his descendants. So that's one possible way of viewing karate, is that it's, 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 it's some kind of divinely meted out punishment. Um, another possibility is that karate is banishment or... Uh, ostracism, right? So you get kicked out of the community for, for these crimes. Um, now, you might argue, and I think that it's worth having a conversation about here, that modern incarceration might be closest in, um, in uh, impact, at least, to, uh, to banishment or, or ostracism. Right, that uh, that you uh, that you that you take negative behaviors or negative acting people out of the community. The main the main difference is, of course, that that um, ostracism was permanent. Right, and not all incarceration is at least designed to be to be permanent. Anyway, in the ancient Near East, especially, what's that? Well, there's another difference, which is that banishment preserves. Leaves a much larger scope of the world, even if it's a terrifying section of the world, available to the person. Right, right. So okay, so if you're I right. From the U.S., I have fifty. I, even if even if <clears throat> I move to a, even if I have to only live in an adjacent country, I have the entirety of Canada to wander around in. Yes. So what, I make if they are safe. Right. So that's a big assumption. Right. That's that's a big assumption. So if you look at the next line here, in the ancient Near East, especially in sparsely inhabited areas, banishment would have often resulted in death. Um, so so in effect, it actually the ostracism was more like a death penalty. Um, if you think about its 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 function from the point of view of you know sort of like uh, evolutionary biology, um, we we need groups to survive. Right. I mean, you know, the person living on a desert island um, is not likely to survive unless you're Tom Hanks and you make friends with the volleyball and whatever. Right. But uh, but normally speaking, the person wouldn't uh, survive if they're living alone. The presumption is if you kick somebody out of the community, they don't really have anywhere else to go um, or they go to another society where they're very vulnerable. Right. Yeah. So. Right. Right. Ah, we haven't gotten there yet. Um, that's going to be reserved for you guys to look at in Chavruta. Um, uh, refuge City is an interesting case. Uh, so, but anyway, the policy that a person, family, or tribe would be cut off and banished from the larger community because of an offense on the human level translated itself into the perception that God would similarly cut off those who had offended him if human agencies had allowed such offenses to go unpunished. So it was another way of understanding karate is that these were things that, that couldn't really be punished by the human community, so the, the punishment would be sort of like spiritual in nature. Right? So that's, I think, the force of excision at the hands of heaven is like you, you, may not be get, you may not get kicked out of your community on earth, but you'll get kicked out of God's kingdom. So this is like excommunication. It, it might be excommunication. Excommunication is more like what we'll see from Maimonides or, or a summary of Maimonides in the next text. But just looking at Karit, for example, for, for a second, uh, it, so Karit is a punishment for one who has relations with his mother or his father's wife or his daughter-in-law or with a man or with an animal or, right, these are, these are uh, this is the Mishnah talking here, okay? This is not uh, how we 
uh, understand, uh, 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 although we would still understand the, the, um, the incestuous relationships in the same way, or with an animal, or bestiality, um, or a woman who has an animal have relations with her, or one who has relations with a woman and her daughter, or with a married woman, or with his sister, or with his paternal, okay, lots of all those things in Leviticus. Um, what? Lots of sex crimes. Lots of sex crimes. Uh, <laughs> Law and order. Right. <laughs> this is all SVU. Um, other individuals who are subject to karate are one who blasphemes, one who uh, worships idols, sacrifices his children to molech, a necromancer, one who violates Shabbat, remember that, uh, or an impure person who eats consecrated food, one who enters the temple when impure, one who eats forbidden fat. Um, uh, lots of, lots of, uh, of, of religious crimes, many of which are done in private or couldn't otherwise be known. So what's the punishment for Malacha on Chagi? Because we talk about Malacha violating Shabbat, so we talk about Malacha on Yom Kippur. It's treated the same way. It's treated the same way. It's, it's, just, it's just instructive activity for the Shabbat. But Malacha on Yom Kippur, it, it's just defining what Malacha is. Yeah. This list of 36 doesn't mention Malacha on Chagi. Yeah, yeah, it does. No. It says one who does Malacha that defines Malacha on Yom Kippur. It, no. So... Oh, oh, I see. Okay, but it says a parenthesis on Shabbat. That's, that's the definition yeah. of Malach. So, but Mishnahically, <laughs> and, and also biblically, Shabbat is often used interchangeably with, with days that are treated like Shabbat. Okay. Which are right. kind of. Are, are, are essentially, I mean, you can, uh, the exceptions being that you can carry on, on yeah, Yom Tov. There are exceptions. Well, so, but you, so, so that's actually the like one public thing, right? Uh, right. Most of the other violations of Shabbat you could e- just as easily do in private, but uh, but that's one violation of Shabbat that's hard to keep private. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Now uh, we do have excommunication, but excommunication is is uh, introduced in Jewish law as something separate from karet, which means that. It probably wasn't what Karate meant, unless Karate literally meant you got, you know, sent into the desert probably to die. Right? Excommunication, in its medieval sense, um, was probably not a death sentence in the same way, uh, but meant that you that you no longer had uh, uh, certain rights and privileges within the context of the community in the same way that you have that in you know Catholicism today, etc. Right? So Maimonides enumerates uh, twenty four. Specific offenses which are correct, which are correctly to be punished not with execution, incarceration, or flogging, but with excommunication. Yeah. Why would entering into business relations with an ex-spouse be? Yeah, that was that one kind of stuck out at me, but. That, that, I mean, yeah, because I agree with or not, I guess. I, I mean, it's a, it's a good idea or not is another topic, but why is it? Uh, I don't know the I don't know the answer to the why. I mean, I could speculate uh, the possibility that um, it might lead to uh, it might lead to licentiousness. I don't know. Um, right, you're not supposed to have relations with an ex spouse. Well, you're not if they if if they get remarried. Um, I don't know. But if you look at the next paragraph down there, you know, he, um, the author. Yeah. Acknowledges that modern readers will, will might find yeah. uh, excessive the notion of excommunicating ex spouses who maintain or begin post divorce business relationship. Um, so I didn't I didn't um, look most of these up in the commentaries. By most I mean any 
um, <laughs> um, to see if any give explanations as to why those are issues or not. Yeah. Realize a modern interpretation, you know, is different, but that just sort of jumped at it. This one also profaning the second day of festivals is observed in the diaspora. Yeah, so that's yeah. why you can't profane them on the second day of your Israel. <laughs> right. So it's saying that because yeah. second days are rabbinic, it's not, it's not kind. Oh, it's, 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 it's he's covering a new development. Oh, right. Um, so, you know, uh, I, yeah, I don't, so I honestly don't know the answer to the question. I can do a little yeah, bit of digging and see. Um, um, second day of Yom Tov is an is an important one for us to consider in the in, in the coming days. I suspect that there are that that you know Maimonides is a rationalist, so I suspect that Maimonides thinks that there's like um, legitimate social reasons or rationales within the system of Jewish law to make something like that worthy of excommunication. Um, uh, I mean, the function of excommunication. Is there any indication with Rambam whether he views excommunication as more or less harsh than flogging? Uh, I don't or know. Just differently harsh. <laughs> right. I don't know about. I don't know about harsh. My guess is, I mean, it's obviously physically less harsh than flogging, but in, but in, but in, 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 in practice, so. right? In practice, it's more harsh. Yeah. Um, excommunication did it last for life. Yeah. Which is where flogging is harsh, but I mean, there, there, I have to go back and look at the laws of excommunication. Uh, it's possible that that you could uh, repent your way out of excommunication. Reinserted, Yeah. I guess my point is, once you get flogged, I mean, it's terrible, but when it's over, when it's over, it's over, right? Excommunication follows you around forever. Right. So you, that's. That's also, you know, that's also important. Oh, by the way, I didn't, I didn't mention, uh, maybe it went without saying that when we talked about the, the sort of uh, uh, punitive measures or retributive measures uh, that, we, that uh, we mentioned before, um, things like financial restitution when, uh, when, when uh, offenses uh, concern property, right, theft or damage to property, things like that, Right, are are to be financially compensated, right? So there's that kind of punishment as well. But that's that's sort of like law of retaliation, or or or, or, or there's 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 compensation and uh, and um, uh, what's the word we're looking for? Um, It's got yeah, there's a there's a term for compensation when it also includes like damages? yeah damages right um, penalties included in it. So there's some of that. There's sometimes that stuff too. Um, uh, but but again, you know the 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 function of that stuff was sort of like um, you know uh, uh, restorative to the moral status quo, right? So you know that thing belonged to them. That was their property. It was taken away from them. But you restore it, and then we're all everything's sort of even, right? Again, um, uh, uh, that that also is a similar uh, function of the the death penalty, um, right? And then you have, so you have that stuff. You have the um, uh, the the deterrent uh, kinds of things, uh, and then you have the um, 
the, the aspect of, of these laws that are about the purity of the community. Right? I guess in, a lot, in some ways excommunication is, is probably closer to that, the purity of the community. Um, although there are, there are aspects of it that are also um, in some way meant, I think, to be deterrent, um, you know, which is, uh, uh, which is you know, uh, Maimonides says uh, that, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you uh, um, uh, uh, disregard, let's see, where is it? Um, no, not that. Um, he talks about um, treating Torah rabbinic law disrespectfully, right? So, uh, so he mentions uh, uh, excommunication as the punishment for doing that, um, probably presuming that if you knew that you'd be excommunicated for doing it, you wouldn't do it. Right? So it's, it's got a deterrent capability, capacity.